0: Yeah, so we're starting at uh, verse 18 until the end of the chapter. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, "'Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me.' His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, "'Ask him which one he means.' Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, "'Lord, who is it?' Jesus answered, "'It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread "'when I have dipped it in the dish.' "'Then, dipping the piece of bread, "'he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. "'As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. "'So Jesus told him, "'What you are about to do, do quickly.' "'But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him.' Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the festival, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer, You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times.
1: Good morning, family. How are we doing? Excellent. I don't know really why I ask that every week because only ever one person's good. Maybe one day everyone will say it together. A resounding good. I uh, long for that day. Uh, good to be with you, <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, great to be able to be here as family and celebrating who Jesus is and what he has made us to be. Um, great to sing together. Great to pray together. Uh, We're going to be continuing in the book of John. Um, If you would like a Bible, there's a bunch of hardcover black copies up the back there. Please feel free to grab one anytime. Um, And we'll be in John 13 uh, from verse 18, so keep your finger in there. Uh, Before we uh, jump in, let me pray for us. Gracious Jesus, uh, we thank you so much that uh, your glory has shone down on us by what you have done on the cross, that you loved us with an everlasting love and that love endures forever. We thank you uh, that you have shown us uh, not only the love of God, but you've shown us what it looks like to love one another. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us by your Holy Spirit to love one another as you have loved us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I don't know if you ever noticed, but love is a pretty slippery word. Let me demonstrate. I love my new cast-iron fry-pan. I love my dog, Loki. I love my wife, Jackie. I love my friend, Wayne chan I love my mum. Each of these statements is very true and yet each of them are also very different, have you noticed? I do not love my mum like I love my dog. I also do not love my cast-iron fry-pan like I love my wife quite (laughs) fortunately, because that would be weird. So love is a slippery term, right? The way we use love is very, it's complex, it's multifaceted, at least in English. So the 1993 song, What is Love? was quite right in repeatedly asking, what is love? Baby don't hurt me. I don't know why the second bit's there, but anyway. what is love? Well, love is clearly a, a bunch of different things in English language. Love is um, a romantic attraction, right? That, that heart-jumping, um, earth-shattering feeling you get when you share a mutual attraction with someone else. Uh, love is also strong affection, the sort of affection you might feel uh, for a close friend or for a family member. Uh, love also can be a pleasure, You know, it's a pleasure that comes from a a hobby or a pursuit or maybe a certain item, like my frying pan. And finally, of course, the most important definition of love is that love is a zero score in tennis. I really have no idea why, and it does not feature in the sermon after this. (laughs) Whatever we mean by love, uh, it's incredibly important to us, right? It's, it's a cornerstone of what we understand to be good relationship. It's something to be desired and it's something to be given. It's really important then to know that only Christians claim that God is love. That God is love, that God is the source of love. And that human love, the way we love things, is only a f- reflection of the way that God loves And so as with anything, it can be a good reflection. It can also be a dirty reflection if we, through our sinfulness, distort the love of God. So if this is true, then to know love and to know how to love properly and to know how to love well, we need to know God and we have to understand how His love directs our love. And so, we're going to be in John chapter 13, verses 18 to 38. And as we go, we're going to discover three things about love. We're going to find that love is glorious in God. Love is crucial for the church. And love is attractive to the world. I'll say this again. Love is glorious in God. Love is crucial for the church. And love is attractive to the world. So let's start with, a love is glorious in God. Okay, so let's jump in at verse 18. Jesus says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Okay, so we need to remember the context of where we're up to in John. Uh, We're getting a glimpse into the Last Supper. This incredibly intimate meal that Jesus shares, the Passover meal, uh, with his 12 disciples before his passion begins, his betrayal, uh, condemnation and crucifixion. And already Jesus has raised the temperature of the room by doing this incredibly controversial act of washing the disciples' feet, something that no master would do. And so demonstrating that he is not only a king, but a servant king who gets down into the muck and serves and gives an example to his followers that they should also serve. He's also hinted uh, so far that there are hidden schemes at work. One of those reclining at the table is actually only masquerading as a friend and all the while concealing a plan of secret betrayal. But here in these verses, we see that Jesus, again, is is not unaware of this. He's not surprised by this. He knows. And so he quotes um, from King David, from Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who has shared my bread, has turned against me. He now says that these words are are not just about David, but about himself. That Jesus' mission to redeem the world had to include being betrayed. Betrayed by the world, by his own people, even by those closest to him. Jesus reveals that this betrayal is actually going to have unexpected results for his disciples. He says this is not going to be just a tragedy Uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy is actually going to help you to believe. Jesus said, When it happens, you will believe that I am who I am. Or if we were to translate it literally, when it happens, you will believe that I am, just I am. What's this? God, what was he talking about? Well, I am is the name that God revealed to Moses as as being His name. Uh, G- Moses came to God and said, "God, if you send me to the Israelites and they ask me, you know, who sends me? What God is it? What is His name? What do I say?" And God replied, "I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you." And so it happens, and. Uh, and this is the background that, that, that Jesus um, is talking about with these words when he says to his disciples. With this background, there's, there's no mistaking what he's trying to say. This is his amazing and incredible controversial claim. Jesus says to his disciples, when, when, all you, you, when all that I have said has come true, when Judas has betrayed me, when I am tried unjustly by the Jews and by the Romans, when I am crucified, when I rise from the dead... Then remember what I told you, and believe the truth that I am who I am, that I am God Almighty. And so it happens. Judas is uh, named by Jesus. He is given uh, the piece of bread symbolizing who it is that will betray him and Jesus. Uh, Judas flees out into the night, out into the darkness. Of his infamous deed. So now he is gone, and there is only 11 left. And Jesus turns to them, and he says this Verse uh, verse 31 Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. In other words, as the great I Am is betrayed and crucified, the disciples are going to witness the glory of God. So we should pause at this stage and ask a really important question. What exactly is the glory of God? Well, let me uh, use an illustration to try and help us to understand this really complex uh, question. Uh, it was Thursday morning. I uh, ro- rocked up to the office and it was, it was gr- as usual, grey, overclass, cloudy, a bit rainy, just a bit yuck. I uh, went into the office very excited to get up into my room and put the heater on full bore, uh, use some dude's power bill as much as I can, and uh, kind of hunker down there, do some work for a while, which I did for the next few hours. And then eventually I thought, well, getting hungry, better go get some lunch. So I went downstairs and went out the front door and lo and behold, it was sunny. It was beautiful, in fact. It was like I hadn't seen for weeks. The, the, the clouds had parted, the sun was out, uh, it was warm, it was just wonderful. And so I went up to the, the corner of Ligon Street and, um, and uh, whatever the other street is and, uh, and I just, just stood there for a while, eyes closed, head up, must have looked like a complete weirdo, and just enjoying the moment. It warmth from my face. It was, it was just lovely. Uh, if someone had passed me at that moment and kind of said, Hey, hey Pete, how you doing? I might have said to them, oh, isn't this glorious? Isn't this glorious? What would I have meant by that? Well, I would have meant that right in that moment, I was experiencing and enjoying everything that the sun is. It's brilliant. It's light. It's heat. It's warmth. In the same way, the glory of God is his holiness, his beauty, his perfection, everything that he is, on display for all to see. As one pastor I read put it, it's God going public. So knowing this now, uh, if we now read these words again of Jesus, it adds so much more weight to it. He's saying that God is going to glorify the Son, and he's going to do it now, and immediately he's saying that He's saying that right now, at this very moment in history, God's glory is going to be on display. Everything that he is will be public in a way that hasn't been seen since the creation of the world. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is going to act as a window through which God's glory will shine like a supernova. But how could this be glorious? I mean, this seems to be the opposite of glorious. It's betrayal. It's injustice, it's pain, it's death. So surely this is something to shy away from, not something to bask in. Well, it is glorious. And it's glorious because the death of the Son reveals the love of the Father. It's glorious because the death of the the Son reveals the great love of the Father. As John himself will write years later in his first letter, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As deep as our sin goes, the love of God goes even deeper. It goes all the way down. So just like the sun's rays bring the glory of the sun to us, so the cross shines the glory of God down upon us. And so the glory of God in the love of God is something not only just to to intellectually understand, but something to see, something to know, something to experience, something to bask in, like we would bask in the warmth of the sun. It's also something that we can participate in. God's love makes it possible for us to love Him in return. As God pours down his love from us, our hearts are warmed and we respond as his creations made in his image in love for him and all he is. Love for Jesus and what he has done. In this way, the love of God enables us to share in the love that God has with himself. Remember that God is Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit united in perfect harmony and love and God invites us to share in that. And the key, the door, the way, the truth to get into that glory, to experience it, is Jesus, his life, his perfect life, his shameful death, his glorious resurrection, his ascension back to the Father. This is the gospel and this is the way in to experience the love of God and see the glory of God. So love is glorious in God. And as we share in this love, we, uh, we become able to reflect it, not just back to God, but outwards into our relationships. And that is why love is also crucial for the church. My second point. Love is crucial for the church. Uh, the other day I was uh, going down a Wikipedia black hole. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Somewhere down there, um, <laughs> I hit upon schools of fish. Schools of fish are fascinating. Do you know that? Uh, do you know a, a school of herring? can contain up to three to four billion fish and stretch around four cubic kilometers. It's incredible, isn't it? So if you know what I'm talking about, schools of fish, right? This is where a a, a bunch of fish all group together, right? And not only do they group together, but somehow they are able to um, stay around about exactly the same distance apart from each other and move in the same direction. Imagine that across Three cubic kilometers. It's, it's just incredible. It's amazing. Scientists have really no idea how they even do it. Like, it's just, It just boggles the mind how you can have that level of coordination. Presumably, there must be some guiding principle that we just haven't discovered yet. Some, something that they use, like some communication that helps them uh, to stay in, in synchronicity. The church of God is a little bit like this in that there is a, there's a, we're called to be united like a school of fish. you are called to be united not only in, in, uh, in friendship and family, but also united in direction. We, we have to go in the same way, through the same belief, through the same faith, through the same hope. But unlike a school of fish, unfortunately, there is a guiding principle, a guiding relational principle, and we know what it is because Jesus tells us. The guiding relational principle of the church that helps us to be united is love. So Jesus says in verse 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. It almost seems too simple, doesn't it? It's almost like a Sunday school answer. You know, anything your Sunday school teacher puts up is even love for Jesus, right? So you've got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Love is, is it's almost like we use it so often and think about it so much for so long that sometimes the shine gets taken off it a bit and we forget just how important it is. But Jesus was clearly convinced that love is absolutely crucial for his people. And so he gives them what he calls a new command. Notice that it's a command. Not a suggestion. Not an optional extra. It's a command with all the weight of a command. This is something that we uh, have to do. But it's not only a command. It's a new command. What's so new about it? This is a bit strange because even uh, in Jesus' day, the the Jews understood that love was important far, far, far um, before the days of Jesus. God said to his people Israel that you had to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus summed those up as well. So what is new about this command? Well, I think what is new is not so much this, the, the command itself, but the standard that has been set. The new standard for relationships within the church is now the love of Jesus for the church. The new standard for relationships within the church is now the love of Jesus for the church. The love of Jesus is demonstrated through his loss of status and his willing sacrifice. So instead of holding on to his status as king of kings, he took the form of a servant. Instead of receiving tribute, he performed healings. Instead of a palace he became a homeless wanderer. Instead of dining with the rich and powerful, he sat down at a table to have bread and wine with sinners and foreigners. Instead of taking up a scepter, he took up a towel. Instead of a long, prosperous life, he died a young and shameful death. This is how God demonstrates his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, said Paul. This is the standard now for how we must love. Like Jesus, laying aside our rights, our privileges, our our comfort, and adopting a lifestyle of service and sacrifice. What does it look like for our family, for our, our church community here? Well, imagine if we were constantly looking to build friendships, to build relationships with other people in our community, even if they were different from us have different backgrounds, different education, maybe different cultures, different ages. Imagine if we put all that aside, laid aside our, our own status, the way we see ourselves in society, and pursued friendships, deep friendships with those who are not like us. Imagine if we were always willing to give up our, our own likes and preferences for the sake of the whole body. And if we're really recipients of the love of God, and and sometimes Mm -hmm. when we think, I really don't want to do that, maybe sometimes our next thought should be, but you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. Because here is an opportunity for me to love. To love like Jesus did. We have a, we're so ingrained into what we consider to be our rights, what we consider to be our rights, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Entitled. We're so enti- we feel like we're so entitled to living life a certain way and to having certain things, but the life of a Christian is actually to give up those things for the sake of someone else. Does that mean we kind of just sell everything and go live a nomadic life in a cave? No. But it does mean that we need to put on goggles of love so that every day we're looking for opportunities where we can serve and love like Jesus did sacrificially, and I've shared this, I've shared this before, but uh, I saw a great example of this last year. Um, uh, we had two guys in one of our missional communities, and uh, and these guys were like chalk and cheese, like so different, it's crazy. <laughs> and I know that their difference meant that they were I found it hard <laughs> to you know converse. <laughs> and be in a relationship, but they're in the same MC, and, and they got this. And so they said to each other, hey, we're going to be in a DNA group together. We're going to catch up on a weekly or fortnight, whatever it was, and we're just going to try and share life. We're going to work through this thing. And they did that, and they did that consistently. They really committed to it, and man, it was awesome to see. It was awesome to see when they come up and go, you know, jokingly, they would say, oh, man, we hate each other, but we love each other. <laughs> That's Christian community, Right. The gospel brings together people who are completely and only different, not the sort of people you would naturally be friends with, and binds them together in a sort of love that isn't based on just desire or just affection or, or just getting something or enjoying something, but based simply on the love that God has poured out for us. That's Christian community. That is distinct in this world. And when it happens, God's glory shines through so clearly because it could only happen because of him. And so he gets the glory, he gets the credit, and we always should give him the credit. Um, We could come away from this thinking then that love is only about sacrificial service, that it's only about doing stuff, and that's a helpful corrective from our society's uh, tendency to think that love is a feeling. But there is more to love than, than only action. Christian love does also include affection. Notice that Jesus, when he t- calls, talks to his disciples, he calls them my my dear little children. It's a it's an intimate term. It's showing the love that the Father has for him is is flowing through Jesus for his disciples at that moment. There is real affection for them. When when Paul talks to the church, he says, "I would ideally desire to be with you." Out of the affection that Christ has given me. So there's every reason in the world why we should not just love to uh, love like family, but we should love being family. Because being family is wonderful. If, if you want deep and lasting friendships with people who will love and support you, then welcome to Inner West Church. This is the place to be. If here you will find open homes, open dining tables, open living rooms, open lives. There is a place for you and our family because God has made a place for us in His and all this doing life together, uh, it's, it is so good, it's really enjoyable. Sometimes I think there must be a catch. And in some ways there kind of is, because sometimes life gets messy. Sometimes relationships don't work like they should. Sometimes conflict happens. But actually, even this, God has a way of turning into good, because when it happens in the church and we work through it and we seek to forgive and reconcile and come back together, then man, God gets a lot of glory. Because it's only through his spirit that, it, that it's able to happen. The word out there will say about a broken relationship, just move on and leave it behind. And we say no. Because God, Jesus didn't leave us behind. So we fight for it. And God has this way of healing our brokenness and using mess to make much of himself. Uh, so I love being part of this family. I love... Uh, I love being here with you in whatever shape or form that we gather together. When I go away, I miss you. When I come back, I can't wait to be back together with you. And I love that as I've talked to many of you, you share that feeling. We love this church and it's great. We need to keep growing in love and affection for each other. We need to keep working at it, keep reminding ourselves of the source of that love. That's the glory of God and poured out through the love of Christ. This is, this is the tap that needs to be turned on the full if we're going to really, really grow as a church. There's another reason that love is really important and crucial for the church. Um, And we already see it in this passage a little bit with Judas. We see that there are dark forces that oppose God and oppose His Son and oppose His people and, and seek to divide and splinter. Love is actually what glues us together in those times. Love is what protects us and gets us through when forces come against us, when we live in a, a world that's hostile to the gospel and hostile to the things that we believe. It is love that will keep us unified and keep us from splitting and keep us from, to, from conforming to the world around us. Knowing the love of God, loving Him and loving each other, that's what will do it. So, as a church, we need to constantly remind each other that if God is for us, if He loves us, then who can be against us? And stick together, remind each other about all the things that are true. Taking Jesus' command seriously to love one another, not just to build us up, but to keep us going, to persevere through this life. So, we've seen the love of God, uh, love is glorious in God, love is crucial for the church, and finally, love is attractive. To the world. Uh, these, this verse, uh, particularly verses 34 to 35, has probably influenced how I've thought about this church more than any other passage in the Bible. Not to say that all the Bible isn't useful and good and God's Word, but this one particularly, God has used as we have begun this church. When I have opportunity to explain to people why we insist and commit to gathering as missional communities and putting so much emphasis and resources into them, this is the verse I go to. Let me tell you why. Because not only do we have to make sure that we have opportunities to love each other as God's family, we also have to make it sure that we are able to go on mission together. The mission to show others the way to salvation in Jesus, right? Mission together is actually a very—it's a bit of an uncommon concept in the Western Church. What's much more common is to say to each individual person: go out and be on mission by yourself, go out into your workplaces, into your families, and tell others about Jesus by yourself, or invite them to come to a Sunday gathering, Um, but do it on your own. And we'll we'll kind of pray for you from over here. That's really common, a really common strategy in lots of churches. And it's actually not very effective. It's actually not very biblical. Most commonly it's it's not how Jesus tells us to be on mission. And I think these two verses here are so vital in showing us what it looks like to be a community on mission. Let me read them again. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you so you must love one another. Verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, a new command I give you, have, have great flashy Sunday services. This is how people will know you are my disciples, when you have great big flashy Sunday services. doesn't say that. He doesn't say, a new command I give you, post Christian stuff on Facebook. That's how people will know you are my disciples, when you post Christian stuff on Facebook. No, it doesn't say that. He doesn't say, a new command I give you, uh, learn apologetics. You know how to answer really tough questions. That's how people will know that you're my disciple. He doesn't say any of those things. Now, hear me when I say, I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong. In fact, all of them are good. We should have great gatherings on Sunday. We should absolutely use social media well. We should absolutely learn apologetics and know how to answer tough questions that people have. But Jesus is saying here, all those things are subservient, underneath the, the main missional concept, which is love. The love you have for one another. This is how people will know you are my disciples. So the sort of love we have in the church, a love which flows from who God is into us, out to others in our family, the way we love and serve sacrificially, giving up our status, that sort of love will be so attractive to people that when they see it in action, they'll be stunned. Some people will be stunned in a way in which they will not like it. They'll mock it, they'll They'll put it to shame. They may even resent us for it. But others will be attracted to it. They'll want to ask questions. They'll say, "Why, why would you love like that? What could possibly inspire you to love like that? Why are you so kind? And we'll answer, well, because Christ first loved us. And so in that way, they will know not only that we are disciples, but they will know who our Master is. Tertullian one of the great uh, first great theologians back in the 2nd century he quoted the people of his day paraphrased and said look they say how these christians love one another for they themselves hate one another and how they are ready to die for each other for they themselves are ready to kill each other now that's not to say that there's not so love in the world i know i've got friends who are not christians who are amazingly loving people the difference between us as Christians and people who are not Christians, is not so much morality and love. The difference is Jesus. The difference is where the love comes from and what motivates it. And that's what's going to make us stand out in this world. It's going to make us look different and radical. So how's this going to happen? Well, if the command is, love one another, this is how people will know that you are my disciples. Well, clearly people are going to have to see us love one another, right? What's that going to take? <coughs> well, it take, I, don't, I actually don't think two hours on a Sunday morning is going to be enough, do you? I don't think even like a, an extra couple of hours on a Tuesday or Thursday night is going to cut it. Because <laughs> it's going to love one another. If they're going to really see the sort of love that Jesus demonstrates, then they've got to see us loving one another, even when it's really hard even when it's difficult even when uh when it means that we have to when not just when we're being nice and friendly to each other but when relationships are breaking down and when when we have to sacrifice when we have to give up our status that's when they have to see us not just at our worst but at our not just at our best sorry but at our worst for people to know this sort of love they need to be close to us they need to be in our homes in our families our relationships our marriages in our bad days, in our good days, in our ups and our downs, in our very lives. <laughs> so we should we, we seek to build friendships with all people, not just Christians, but those who are not Christians as well. And as we do with, with, with people in our church, we need to invite people into our lives so they get to see this love demonstrated in all of life. Because if we believe Jesus and we believe his words, and that's what it takes. It's going to take a lot of hard work. And that's why we have missional communities. (laughs) Missional communities are are a chance, an opportunity to put this into practice because without them, it's going to be really hard. we are probably not going to be able to do it. It's in this context, a small group, group of people committed to loving each other like family and serving like Jesus, inviting people in to experience that love and service. That's what it's going to take. That means that mission communities can't just be a an event on a Thursday night. It's got to be a lifestyle together. We're going to have to work at this, and so, and you know what? We're going to get it wrong too. We're going to try it, and it's going to stuff up. We're we're gonna it's going to be messy. It's going to be complicated. Are we going to do it because Jesus says that we've got to do it? Because He's loved us already. But even uh, when it doesn't work, God is really gracious. So, as I finish, I wanted to draw your attention just to these last few verses, which just shows the grace of God. Because Peter, you know, the, one of the, the best of the disciples, the, the closest to Jesus, he hears all these words and they just fly past him. He doesn't get it. He says, Jesus, you're going away? Like, can I come too? And Jesus says, No, you can't, because not yet, at least. You can't come to where I'm going. Peter says, oh, but Jesus, I'll, I'll give up my life for you. Such enthusiasm, such, uh, such uh, passion for Jesus. You've got to like it. But he misses it. He doesn't know that what Jesus has to do, he must do alone. So Jesus actually says to Peter, well, you're going to deny me three times. The, the closest to Jesus ended up to being the one who was furthest from Jesus on that day, denying that he even was a disciple. So no one knew that Peter was a disciple of Jesus on that day. And yet this same Peter, after Jesus had risen, had Jesus come to him and restore him three times. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And this same Peter was restored to become a leader of this new church. The person who God chose to be the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles for the very first time one of the greatest missionaries that's ever lived. So if God can do that with Peter, who on, the, on that day, that dark day, denied his son, how much more can God use us, not only to love one another as Jesus loved us, but through the power of his spirit to go out as missional communities and as individuals as well, and shine that love to others so that they may see it and know that we are his disciples and become a disciple as well. Family, let's keep at it. Let's not grow weary of doing good. Let's sow these seeds of love so that we might see a harvest be brought in. Amen. Amen.